0: To you, welcome to each of you. Psalm 102 tonight. Our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, it's great to have a Bible. Good to read the Bible or hear the Word of God. But even better to read it, especially on Sunday nights, as we cover a little bit of territory through the Scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, just flag one of these guys that have the Bibles coming up the aisles right now. That's what we call them—one of these guys around here. And uh, they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, a gift from the Lord to you tonight. So we come to Psalm 102. And this uh, it appears that this psalm was written by a psalmist unknown to us by name. Apparently we don't need to know his name. But it does appear that it's written from uh, Babylon. The Jews went into captivity to Babylon. The southern kingdom of Judah did. And uh, they were uh, Daniel. I mean, Jeremiah had stated the fact that they would be in captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years. They had ignored God's law to give a uh, Sabbath year rest to the land Each year for 490 years, and so they owed God 70 years of obedience. And so because of their idolatry, God moved them out of the land into captivity to the Babylonians. But he had said that it would be for 70 years, and then they would return to the land. And so it appears that this was written late in the Babylonian captivity as that 70 year mark is approaching by someone who is longing for the return of God's people into that promised land of Israel, but he kind of has a sense that uh, that he may not live long enough to see it, but he is so confident in God's promise that they would return to the land that if he didn't see it and his generation didn't see it, he knew that a generation to come would experience it. And so he writes um, uh, to us, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. In that day I shall call. Answer me speedily. So he's in trouble, and he feels like he needs God's help quickly. And, uh, 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 I, you know, if the psalmist is old enough... To have experienced the land of Israel prior to going into Babylonian captivity, for that generation of Jews, I cannot even begin to imagine the longing that they would have to return to that land, the beauty of that land, a gift from God to the Jewish people. And, And so here he is. He's separated from it. Now they're getting close to returning and he's got some things that he wants to say to the Lord here and and he he wants to pour his heart out. The circumstance that he's in, he needs help fast. He describes his physical condition. He says, for my days are consumed like smoke. Smoke is a fleeting substance, isn't it? Here, one moment and gone the next. He said, my life... Is fleeting. It's moving quickly. My bones are burned like a hearth, and so he probably has some kind of a fever that he uh, that is inside of him. My heart, uh, my heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. And so this the the the, the physical impact of the sorrow over being separated from the land that it has upon him, the loss of appetite related to that. And he said, because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. Not only is there the loss of appetite, but then the loss of muscle mass as a result of it. He skin." And bones and his groaning. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. And pelicans in the wilderness were renowned for being solitary creatures. He says, I feel like I'm alone living in desolation. As he looks at Babylon all around him. Now Babylon was like the envy of the whole wide world at that time. And he looks at it and and he just thinks to himself... I know the whole world would love to live in Babylon. I'd give all of this up in a half second to be back in the land of Israel. I feel like I'm living in a land of desolation. You ever uh, travel sometimes, or, and sometimes you can just be traveling through our own state, and you just kind of go along, you're driving and you're driving, and you can, you can drive through a city, and you can feel an oppression upon that city. You know, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so what affects the Holy Spirit and the environment around us affects the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we have a sense of that. We have a feel of that. There are cities within driving distance of here that every time I drive through them, I realize this city is a stronghold of the devil that needs to be broken. But I'm not called to be a part of it unless it's through prayer. Prayer. But you just have that sense of, of that whole thing that goes on around it. I've had the privilege of traveling all around the world related to the kingdom of God. I pinch myself. I never take it for granted. My wife is a witness. If I get to travel anywhere, I just suck every bit of everything I can out of that because I never know if I'll get to get back into a car again or get back on a plane again. So I never take it for granted. But I've had the privilege of being in some of the most beautiful places in the whole wide world. The art that is there, the sculptures, the architecture, unbelievable. And yet as I've walked those streets and I've looked at those wonders and all of those things, I have thought to myself that if I had to live here without God, I don't know what I would do. Most beautiful place in the whole wide world. If God isn't there and isn't there strongly, I mean what is what is the beauty of it? What is the the purpose of it? God makes things beautiful in a real way, in a deep way, in our lives. And so the the best that the world had to offer was like a desolation to him. I'm like an owl of the desert, again another kind of alone creature. I lie awake. I'm like, I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop and, and speaking about all of this that's going on inside of him, affecting him physically and making him sleepless. He says, my enemies, on top of all of that, my enemies all, they reproach me all day long. And the idea is reproaching him as a child of God, making fun of his faith in God making fun of his belief that one day God is going to restore the children of Israel back into the land of Israel, telling them that your God has lost, we have won, there's no future in your God, the future is with us. That's the country we live in right now. That's the voice of the wicked to the godly in our country, with our history right now. And that voice is gaining stream steam. And so they're emboldened, proud, arrogant, even in the face of the promises of God. What are you doing holding on to God, clinging to God, these ancient promises that He's given? There's no future in God. The future is with us. They don't know what they're talking about. The future is with the righteous always. Because the righteous are with God and the future is always with God. And so they come in, they mock him for his faith in God. They deride, those who deride me swear an oath against me. In other words, when they saw somebody on the street and they wanted to swear at them, they'd say, may you be like this man over here. And they used his name as a curse word. I've eaten ashes like bread. So he's thrown in in the, the his grief over living in the wickedness of Babylon. He throws the ashes on his head as a sign of his mourning. As he eats his bread, the ashes fall down onto the bread. He eats it anyway. It's his portion. But he won't take the ashes off because that's what he's feeling. That's what he's experiencing. And mingled my drink with weeping. As he would take his drinks of of whatever it is that he would be drinking, his tears would fall into it and be mingled into the drink. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. He recognized that this judgment, the reason they were in Babylon to begin with, was because of their sin. And maybe he could look back into his life and realize I was one of the idolaters, I was one of the priests. I was one of the rulers that led the nation into idolatry and into bondage because I didn't conduct myself properly in God's calling. So he realized this was all caused by sin. And then he said, My days are like a shadow that lengthens. In other words, a day is almost over when the shadow lengthens. He says, I feel like my days, my life is almost over and I wither away like grass. And then there's that word, but. Praise the Lord for the buts of the Bible. Because it means forget everything that's come before and now listen to what comes next. But you, speaking to the Lord, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. And now he begins to speak of the fact that he may not see the land, he may not see the fulfillment of God's promise for them to return to the land, but he realizes if I don't see it, another generation will see it because God will be faithful to his promises. It's interesting, I have books in my library. Books. (laughs) Not Kindle, I have books. So I have books in my library. Because there's a lot of books that they don't reprint or they don't whatever. They're useless today because nobody reads anymore. Everybody wants pop psychology and some little, you know, pick-me-up sermon and on their way and all as if that's going to carry us through this hour in human history as Christians. But I've got books in my library that speak uh, of the prophetic scriptures, of the book of Daniel, uh, speaks of Isaiah, speaks of the book of Revelation, And the prophecies that were given that Israel would become a nation again. And these books were written before 1948 when Israel became a nation. It's easy for us to look back at the scriptures and say that Ezekiel says that they're going to be a nation. They're going to be in the land. Once again, we look back on it. It's a part of our history. Most of us in this room were born after 1948. But there were men and women who wrote books and they preached and they taught and they built their Christian life upon the fact that we do not see Israel back in the land, yet we will see Israel back in the land because the Word of God says it. And they did not live to see the fulfillment. We lived to see the fulfillment. Right now in the mornings in my devotional life, I'm reading through the book of Daniel in the latter section Of that book, and God is revealing to Daniel all of the coming governments of the world all the way down to the end of the age, beginning with the Medo Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and then this last days empire that's going to rise up under the Antichrist. And as surely, as surely, is Israel as a nation today. In fulfillment of God's promises, every single prophetic scripture in the Bible is going to be fulfilled to a T and is going to occur. We have history in advance in the Bible. And so here's this beautiful recognition. I may not see it with my own eyes, but I am just a little kind of uh, layer in this long history of God's people I'm a part of it, but I may not be the part that sees that. But God, by faith, I know that's going to happen. And I know a generation of my people, your people, are going to see this to be fulfilled. And you will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. The excitement of the children of Israel He knew that they had to return to those stones. To the people that had conquered the land that were living there, it was just stones and dust. But to the people to whom that was given as a gift from God, it was a lot more than stones and dust. That was their heart toward that land, the eagerness to return. And so the nation shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion... He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. God will rebuild Zion. And so he did. And then you notice in verse 18, he starts to talk about a future people. Again, talking about the generation that's going to follow him. He said, this will be written for the generation to come. I think it's wonderful to realize, here we are, we are Christians in the year 2013. But Christianity has been going on for 2,000 years, and the Old Testament saints for thousands of years prior to that, as they look forward by faith to the coming of the Messiah. How long will history go after us? I don't know. But there's that recognition by the psalmist, we recognize it too. We have our little place in this long line through history, and, and that we're not the end of that. What we do affects another generation. We're excited for the next generation, the promises that will be fulfilled in that generation. For this will be written to the gener- for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary From heaven, the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and to his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. And so he said all of this is going to be fulfilled in a generation to come. And then he contrasts his own weakness to the strength of God. Aren't you glad tonight that the fulfillment of God's promises are not based upon your strength. How confident would you be in a single promise of God if it was based on your strength? If you're really young, you say, well, you know, fairly confident. If you're over 50, you say, not confident at all, thank you. <laughs> comes a point in life where you don't, you don't jump out of bed. You roll over on your side. You get your feet down on the ground and then you lift your upper body up. You don't deal with your body as a whole, not even getting out of bed. You deal with it in halves. (laughs) God's promises are based upon His strength, not upon our weakness. And He's very, very strong. He weakened my strength in the way, He shortened my days. I said, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. He feels like he's going to die soon. He asks for more life. And then he contrasts his problems and his frailty with God. He says, Your years are throughout all generations. We don't have to worry about a single promise. There we are. We're on our deathbed. We wonder what's going to happen to our family that knows and loves the Lord afterwards or even those that don't know and love the Lord. What will happen after we die? God will continue to be strong in their lives. He'll keep His promises to them when we're gone. And to those that don't know the Lord, He will work just as hard as when we are alive every single day and every single night to bring them to a conviction of their sin and to salvation in Christ. The Lord never ceases to be strong. He never runs out of years. He's infinite. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment and like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. God is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. You are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants, again, he goes to that next generation, doesn't he? The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. And it's very important when we find ourselves in the middle of difficult seasons in our life, like this psalmist finds himself in the middle of of a difficult season, that there is always a remnant of God's people in this earth. He will always be faithful to have a witness of his people. Why hasn't wickedness wiped out righteousness by now? Why hasn't the voice of Christ been destroyed when so much has risen up historically to to put a silence and to destroy his people? Why does righteousness survive Why does it continue to go on? Why is there a remnant? Because God is alive. And He's always going to have a remnant. Sometimes we talk about the fact that the church is one generation away from extinction. And that reminds us of the fact that it's important for us to pass our faith on to the next generation. Because if one generation loses it, a generation doesn't step up and carry their baton, or no one believes in the Lord, then all of it can be lost. So it makes us sober about those things. But the flip side to that truth is, is that God will always have His witness. He will always have His generation in, in every generation in history, he will have his people. And righteousness does prevail, and it will prevail, and God will make sure that it will prevail. So no matter how dark it gets or how difficult it gets or how it appears that the things of God, His truth, His ways are on the ropes because of the boldness of darkness and sinful man, the fact that God wins in all of this and all of His promises come to pass, never in doubt. God has His chosen in the next generation to do what He raised us up to do in our generation, and he'll be faithful to them. And Psalm 103 is a beautiful psalm. has a way of becoming a favorite of people sooner or later. And it's a psalm of David that we're told. It's believed that David wrote this psalm uh, kind of later in his life after he had a long history with God. And there's a lot of advantages to growing older in the Lord, all of them spiritual. But we come to know the Lord better. We come to know joy. We come to know peace in a greater measure. We have a long history with God and the intimacy that comes with that. We have a long history of His faithfulness. There's a lot of advantages to growing older, the things of the Lord, having a long history with God. But one of the casualties of a long history with God is over time we can forget His benefits. And sometimes we just need someone to remind us of how blessed we are. We know we're blessed. We experience God's blessings every single day. But He's so lavish with His blessings. His blessings are so multifaceted, so many blessings that after a while we can just begin to take them for granted and then pretty soon some, you know, I break my fingernail and it's the end of the day. (laughs) And then we need someone to remind us of how richly we are blessed so that we never, ever become fat and sassy related to His blessings spiritually and so that we never, ever fail to appreciate those blessings and so david begins and he says bless the lord O my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name bless the lord O my soul he's talking to himself and forget not all of his benefits so he doesn't have some he's the king who's going to come to the king and say hey king Bless the Lord for all of His benefits in your life. Not too many people are going to do that to the king. So he has to do it for himself. And sometimes we may not have anyone in our household or in our family or in our workplace that reminds us of how blessed we are. And so we got to remind ourselves. And Psalm 103 is a great place to do that. If you ever want to stop and just remember, as the old song goes, count your blessings, name them one by one. There's something about naming the blessings. The greatest place in the New Testament to do that is in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes and lists all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, that are part of our lives because we have given our lives to Christ And if we ever forget or we ever think, I'm not blessed, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some worms, big ones, little ones, fat ones, skinny ones, I'm going to eat some worms. And you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and you begin to read who and what we are, how God sees us because of Christ. We realize, wow, I'm blessed. And the Old Testament equivalent is Psalm 103. Anytime we have a sense where we feel, I need to prime the pump of thankfulness in my life because I'm not feeling real thankful right now. Those are two great places to go. And so we start to head through his list here in verse 3. Who forgives all, would you circle that word all at least in your mind? Who forgives all your iniquities. How many of your iniquities has he forgiven? He's forgiven all of your iniquities. That's a lot. We'd settle for 90%. But when you're used to 100%, you don't want to settle for 90%. And he begins with God's forgiveness of our sin because that's the most important thing. I remember hearing, a, reading a statistic and I looked it up to verify it, found out who the speaker was and, and all related to it. But one psychologist or psychiatrist a number of decades ago indicated that in terms of State hospitals in the United States of America that if he could find a cure for guilt, he could empty those hospitals of 80% of their population. You say, I don't believe it. I say, I believe it. I watched what guilt could do to a human being firsthand and up close as a child driving that person into those very institutions could not let go of something or something things plural that she had done in her past and there is a cure for guilt and it sat sits is it easy to be discovered right on the pages of scripture from one end of the book to the other Isn't it wonderful to wake up every single day and not have to rummage through our past sin? Not even the sin that we committed an hour ago and then came under conviction of the Holy Spirit and said, Lord, I realize that what I did there was very far from your nature and from your word. And I ask for your forgiveness. And I pray that you turn this into a learning experience in my life so that when I'm in the same situation again, I won't handle it in the same way. Would you forgive me of my sin? I repent of that. I see it the way that you do. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that quickly I can be freed of the guilt of that sin. Now, how rich are we? to be able to walk that way. Many of you in this room, you walked for a lot of years apart from that kind of forgiveness in life. And you know what it feels like to carry guilt and to carry unforgiveness and to carry sin day in and day out, week in and week out. And you know what it is to be forgiven now. And the quality of life, there's no comparison. So the blessings that we have, if he just stopped, if Psalm 103 just stopped halfway through verse 3, we could bring the worship team back up here and have them lead us in another half hour of worship. That's how great the first blessing is. Who forgives all your iniquities? And if you don't believe that tonight as a Christian, well, we're just going to Ask God to identify you and we're going to come and find you and put you in a headlock and give you the old Swedish knuckle rub until you say, uncle, accept his forgiveness. Paid a great price to be able to extend it to you. Jesus said, do you love me? Obey my commandments. And so when we sin and he extends forgiveness to us, we need to believe that and we need to accept that. And that honors God. And that blesses God. He heals all your diseases. You say, what do you mean by that? I've got a cold or I've got the flu or I've got cancer. It doesn't mean that he heals all of our diseases in the sense that every one of us is going to be healed instantly or going to be healed in this life of every sickness or every disease that we get. It means that every bit of healing that occurs in the world today occurs through him. The fact of the matter is, is that if the Lord tarries, most of us will go into heaven by way of whatever we get sick of last. And it won't be some terrible thing. God won't be wringing His hands in heaven. We'll be greeted heading up. He'll greet us with excitement coming into heaven. Sometimes when somebody is really sick, you can write in a card. And I'm not nitpicking. You write in a card or something like that, and you'll say, I'm praying for your complete healing. I always laugh. You know what the complete healing is? When we lay this tent down and we receive our new body in heaven, I think they're trying to get rid of me. (laughs) But one day... All of us are going to be completely healed. We will lay this body down and we will receive, and it will require that to receive the new body that is prepared for us in heaven that is made for eternity and made for heaven. So He's got it all covered, all healing that comes into our lives. We give Him praise. It's one of His benefits in our lives. And then one day, if He uses something like that to usher us into heaven, we'll give Him even more praise. But no longer through a glass darkly. Then it'll be face to face. He redeems our life from de- destruction. So he talks about Redemption. Were you on your way to destruction before you became a Christian? You were. So I was on the slow path. Okay. We'll give you a gold star. The rest of us were on a fast track to destruction, but we were all on the way to destruction. And some of us were going to destroy our lives faster than other other people would destroy their lives. And God redeemed us and brought us paid the price to get us off of that path of of destruction that leads to destruction. And the word redemption, as it's used in the New Testament, it means to release upon the payment of a ransom. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I are not only forgiven, but we've been redeemed. We have been bought out of the slave market and freed from our former bondages to the sins and self that we're going to lead us to destruction, and we've been redeemed and bought out of that slavery and brought into the freedom that is found in the kingdom of God and found as a Christian. He redeems our life from destruction. The privacy of your own heart, some of us can say tonight, praise the Lord, you redeemed me from destruction, and we know it who crowns your, you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And so a crown is something that beautifies a life. And He makes our life beautiful with His loving kindnesses and His tender mercies. This is talking, we talk about all the big things that God does in our life. And we go, wow, that's a wow thing that God did. That's incredible. This is talking about the loving kindnesses and the and the, the mercies, the little things that He does. Like when you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden... He shows you something in that passage you've never seen before. That's a loving kindness and that's a mercy. The ability to appreciate a sunrise and a sunset in a way that we never would because that's our Father that has created that. That's a loving kindness and that's a mercy these promptings of the Holy Spirit that He gives to us, all these little things that He does that makes our life so special and and intimate with Him. And we thank the Lord for it. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. This is just talking about plain old food, grub. Sometimes we get hungry enough that Where you take and you put that spoon or that fork full of food to your mouth and it touches your tongue and you can feel the nourishment radiate all the way through your body. your body. Our body so needs food and is so impacted by food. Isn't it amazing God keeps this whole world? How many billion is it now? I stopped at five and a half billion. I'm not, count, I'm not counting anymore. Don't even tell me. Don't answer my question. I don't want to know. I'm backpedaling. every time I sit down to a meal I think to myself what was involved in that bread coming to my table what of my father's creation that man cooperated with that I can eat this bowl of pasta or I can have this pork chop new covenant (laughs) and to realize That this food has come as a gift from God to us. One of the great blessings of our life. The food that He provides, our daily bread. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. In other words, He's no respecter of persons. He gives these benefits to everyone. Whether you're a nobody that nobody knows about. Now that's really down there. Or the most famous person in the whole wide world and still a Christian. He takes note of everybody. And he does these things and blesses us. Think about all of the slums. I Think about the slums of Bombay. Nobody will know, not even in that slum, who's lived, who's died, what their name was, what their rank or their serial number or their social security number was or anything about them. And yet God gives the same benefits to them in, that, in their lifetime that he gives to us. They're just as rich in them as anybody else in the world. And he's made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. God leads us and guides us through his word. Praise the Lord for his word. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, you can read that a couple different ways. Boy, that would really preach. He will not always strive with us, and he will not keep his anger forever. Kind of like that. I don't even want to tell you what it really means. And the idea is, though, is when we're in the doghouse with him, and I think we've all been in the doghouse with him, he won't always keep us in the doghouse. He won't always be angry with us. He won't always be disciplining us or punishing us for what it is that we've forced him to discipline us and punish us over. He doesn't hold that grudge that so often people do. And he has not dealt with us according to our sins. You ever talk to a Christian, and you say to them, How are you doing? And they say, better than I deserve. <laughs> That's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. Better than I deserve, always better than we deserve. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. In other words, God's mercy is immeasurable. He never runs out of it. I know I look at Don Loudermilk and I think he's just got to be tapping God out like all the time. You pick on safe targets in the room, by the way. But he never runs out of mercy. I used to pump gas. Oh, not just any old time in human history. In 1973 and 74. During the gas shortage back then. And you didn't have to worry about working long hours. You had a certain amount of gas during that embargo that you could pump each day. And when it was pumped out, you closed everything up and shut down the gas station, even when the cars were still all the way around the block, hoping to get a couple of gallons. God's mercy is never like that. He never, ever runs out of mercy toward us. must mean we need a lot of mercy, and we really do. He tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Now that word transgression is an interesting word in the Old Testament because it speaks of deliberate disobedience. There are times when we sin and we aren't conscious of it We may not even, if we're a new Christian, be aware that it is a sin until later. And then there are those situations where we know better and we sin anyway. We say, is there any forgiveness there in God? Did David know anything about that in his adultery with Bathsheba? And the killing of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, in order to cover up that sin. He knew about transgressions. All of us know about transgressions. And yet when we confess that transgression to God, we may have to deal with consequences. But when we confess that transgression to God and ask for His forgiveness and repent of that sin... The Bible says that he removes that transgression from us as far as the east is from the west. Some of you already know this, so I'll run the risk of boring you, but because everybody has a right to hear it at least once in their Christian life, I'm going to go into it. The interesting thing about removing sin as far as the east is from the west, we say, why didn't he say remove our sin as far as the north is from the south? Because that would only remove our transgressions from us the width of the earth. If you're on the world and you're taking some kind of an orbit or some kind of a trip around the world and you start at the South Pole and you begin to go north, you can only go north till you hit to the North Pole and then you start to head south again. But if on that same globe you begin to go west, you can go west indefinitely and always be going west. You will never be going east, going west. Stop. Somebody stop him, please. But that's the way that it is. That's how far. There's no measurement for how far. It's that blood that separates our sin. That far away from us will never come into contact with it or pay the price of the judgment that is due that sin. Christ bore that upon the cross for sins deliberate and sins accidental. And so he's removed our sins and our transgressions from us that far. And as a father pities his children, do you pity your children? We should pity our children for their parents if for nothing else. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. I don't think there's a father that doesn't pity their children. They look at them and their weakness and their frailties and... You see how hard life can be for them at times and the challenges that they're facing and all of those kind of things. And our heart goes out to them as a father and the heart of God goes out toward us. He knows we're small, we're weak in a very big messed up context. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust And as for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And his place remembers it no more. But the mercy of God is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children as such to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. And so God is unchanging related to all of this. We don't have to say, well, He was like this yesterday, but He isn't like that today. No, He's always like this toward His children who have done the greatest thing that any human being can do to bless the heart of God, and to honor the position of God, and that is by putting our faith in His Son. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. We live with the knowledge that this is my Father's house, that He rules this world, He governs this world, He makes all that happens here to serve His purposes. That's a benefit That's a great, great blessing in our life, to realize that whatever is happening in my life, God will overrule that and work it for His good. Joseph wasn't an exception in the Old Testament. Daniel, Jeremiah, they weren't exceptions in the Old Testament. All those things didn't just happen to them. God took those things that happened to them and then He worked them together for His good, for His plan on planet Earth, and He does it no less for our lives as well. And then, as David thinks about all of his benefits, all he has to want, can do is just head back into it. It's one thing to know your benefits. It's one thing to know the blessings that God has given to us. It's another thing then to express praise and thanksgiving to God for those blessings. The person that never writes a thank you card, they know all their benefits, but they're impolite. And so David here is not impolite. He recognizes the blessings, and he says, Bless the Lord, and he wants to call on all of creation to join him in his praise to the Lord and his heart for how good God is. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. Again, speaking of the angels, you ministers of His who do His pleasure, bless the Lord all His works, all of creation He calls now to join the praise of the Lord in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord. He doesn't leave Himself out of it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And He ends the psalm the same way that it began. Beautiful psalm of the blessings of God. And then in Psalm 104... It's a beautiful psalm. It's a kind of a poet's uh, celebration of God's creation and of God's wisdom behind his creation. So we know in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have a very, I mean, just perfection in terms of God's description of the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them and everything that is on them. And then sometimes it takes an artist to come along and have us look at it from a little different angle. And so this is what the psalmist does now. As he looks at that, those first two chapters of Genesis, how God has created all that is around us, how he marvels at, the, at, at that creation, the wisdom that is behind that creation, and he turns it uh, into a song. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh Lord, my God, you are very great, you are clothed with honor and with majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. In other words, he carry, uh, to, to be covered with something means it characterizes your life. His life is characterized by light, that is by holiness, by righteousness. He's just praising the Lord for who He is before He ever gets to praising God for what He has done, even in creation. That's always a good thing to remember. God is always worthy of our praise simply for who He is. Long before He's worthy, uh, long before we remember to give Him praise for what He does. If He did nothing, He would be worthy of praise for who He is and for His character. And so the psalmist begins with the beauty and the perfection of. Of God and and praises him for that, and then he begins to speak of uh, the uh, his the description now of uh, of this uh, of his celebration of the creation and the wisdom behind all of it here in the second part of verse two on through to the end of the psalm who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Before I came to church tonight, there's a curtain that is over our sliding glass uh, window. And I just went over there and I just pulled that curtain. What can I say? It was effortless. When God created the heavens and the earth, it was effortless. He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters, talking about the creation of the atmosphere, who makes the clouds His chariot, who walks in the wings of the wind. In other words, He inhabits that great realm of the second and the third heaven. He makes who makes His angels' spirits, His ministers, a flame of fire. So He celebrates God's creation of the angelic realm. And remember, angels are created beings. And so he praises the Lord for the wisdom and the power and all behind the creation of angels. And then he returns to the f- creation of the earth. You who laid the foundation of the earth, that is the core of the earth, a solid, well, it's not solid all the way in, but solid for what we touch. You who laid the foundation of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep, As with a garment, the waters stood above the mountains, and at your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You've set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. And so what you have is a description here that the psalmist is describing is that at the beginning of of the creation of land, including the creation of mountains. In the original creation, the whole earth was covered with water. And then on the third day of creation, at the Lord's rebuke, as the, in the poetic language of the psalmist, at his rebuke, the seas and the waters began to recede away from the mountains and the mountains were established above the seas and the seas went down into their lower places and the earth was separated from the waters. And you can almost, as you read through the language here, you can almost see it happening. All of this, the seas coming, the, the, the mountains being raised up, the depths of, of the, the land under the seas deepening so that the water would then rush off of those mountains into the newly established seas. And then God not only does that, but then He governs the boundaries of the oceans and the seas from that time forward, not counting the flood. But that's, that's a different story as it relates to God's judgment. Here he's talking about Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then he talks about just the marvel of creation related to animals and vegetation. He sends the springs into the valleys, not just the oceans and the seas, but he supplies water for animals and, and for vegetation. The springs, they flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home, and they sing among the branches. And he just looks at the marvel of creation. And here you have the oceans. You have the whole cycle. You have the rain. You have the feeding of the streams. Animals are able to get the water from it, the interconnectedness of all of creation. He just marveled at it. He waters the hills. What about the part of the earth that is, you know, sits too high to be watered by streams? Well, he sends rain to that. He waters the hills from his upper chambers, rain. And the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. What if God created cattle and he forgot to create grass? Oops. You never want to hear a dentist say oops when you're here in a drill. And one thing you will never hear God ever say is oops. You did not forget anything. You look at how interconnected. You ever watch those animal shows on television sometimes? And they got these lizards that can look over here with one eye and over here, and then they go under into the ocean, and they got these animals that if you said, All right, listen, you're the craziest person I know. You are some kind of an artist off to the nth degree, and I think you've lost your mind on all. You see things that nobody sees. Would you just draw a bunch of creatures just from your own mind, and they could draw all of them, and then you could go on one of these channels and watch what God created and exists in the Amazon jungle. Or in the ocean. It's incredible. But he didn't just create them. He then created an entire system by which they might be fed and exist. And coexist with everything else. I was watching. I was on YouTube this week. And I um, was uh, watching Norm Geisler debate a famed atheist. He said he wasn't an atheist, but he was an agnostic. But it was an Ankerberg show, and and Geisler is laying out this whole thing. You know, I mean, the guy is just saying, no, there is I, there's no way of knowing that there is a God, and all and this whole kind of thing that he's laying out. Geisler is like torpedoing him repeatedly, one time after another, after another, after another, until it just becomes be, before you realize that this guy is this guy is not open. To the facts, this guy is determined not to believe. Because where the facts lead you in terms of some supreme being that created all of this, as the Bible teaches, creation speaks of a creator, design speaks of a designer everywhere in life, whether it's a watch, whether it's the Eiffel Tower, whether it's an automobile, whether it's chocolate cupcakes. And the creator and the designer is always greater than his creation by virtue of being able to create. And so it isn't enough to be able to deflect every single single evidence that God has given for his existence in creation. What is your answer to it? What is the alternative? And which one then requires more faith to believe? Well, I haven't finished, I didn't have time to finish the whole series, but I have a hunch that that's where the whole thing ends up with Geisler and this man. But the creation is a marvel. It's an absolute marvel to the open mind, to the person who's willing to just see it for the way that it is and what it communicates in terms of the glory and the majesty of God. Not just that he created it, but the wisdom Behind it. What if God created man and He created two men, didn't create a woman? God came this close to be fruitful and multiply. You look at the marvel of the human body, the interconnectedness it is unbelievable, unbelievable. And the only explanation is a Creator. And that argument, it is going to be argued as it has for 100 and, you know, 200 years with the whole evolution thing and all, which is beginning to collapse under its own weight at the moment. But so many people are invested in it intellectually and invested in it spiritually, invested in it monetarily. It's not going to go away easy. Even when some of their main voices begin to abandon the position. That's just the way that it is. You and I can't change what the world will be like in 200 years if the Lord tarries. Right now, it's enough to not be fooled by the nonsense. Don't you love how God makes it so simple that you could take this... And you could go into one of our children's church classrooms and you could teach that to them and they would understand it. You don't have to have a Ph.D. to understand God. God knows how to communicate himself to someone who has no education, but someone who has a heart to seek after God and to know the truth when they hear the truth. And again, creation always speaks of a creator. There is no exception in this world. Every created thing that you wear, that you drive, that you interact with in some way, that was created by someone. And the creator is greater than the creation. And so too with design. Anyone can understand that. And so God, you get into these arguments and... And God just looks and he says, I've given you all that you need to believe. Look at what's all around you. Undeniable. Put creation and design to the same test that you put everything else in life to. And isn't the conclusion that there's a creator and a designer behind all of it? Well, I love it. And so he talks about how the He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of men. So He not only supplies food for the animals, but He supplies food for mankind and vegetation for the service of man. Those of you in junior high and senior high, you eat your vegetables. They come from God. that He may bring forth food. That's my fatherly advice tonight. But he may bring forth food from the earth and wine. Oh boy, everything breaks down. All illustrations, doesn't it? And wine that makes glad the heart of man. Oil, now we're back on track. Olive oil to make his face shine. And bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap. And the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted. So speaking about the beauty of the forest. And then where birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are for a refuge for the rock badgers. And so all these verses he's just talking about. He's marveling at how all of this is so interconnected. He didn't just create it, but he created it with an interdependence that is something even greater on top of creation. He said he appointed the moon for seasons. God established seasons. What if there was only like summer or only winter all of the time? Now, he created seasons. There's a cycle The sun knows it's going down. He created days, sunsets. He made darkness, and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep around. There's a whole bunch of animals that only come out at night. say, who did that? God did that. They didn't learn that. Got a bunch of forest creeps creeping around at night. And the young lions, they roar after their prey. A lot of animals, nocturnal and getting their food. They seek their food from God the way that God has provided it. And then when the sun rises, they gather together. Their day's work, night's work is over, so they go into sleep during the day. And then man comes out to do his work, because we're made to work during the day and to his labor until the evening. Lord, oh Lord, how manifold are your works, In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea. So now he begins to talk about the ocean. Just how immense oceans are. And not only that, but inside of the oceans and the seas, you have made innumerable teeming things. Great things, both small and great. There's little shrimps in the sea. And you've got gigantic whales in the sea. And everything in between. And he put... All of them together. The sea is a place where the ships sail about. And so they provide a pathway for shipping. And there's the Leviathan, which you have made to play there in the sea. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the Leviathan speaks about some awesome, great kind of creature that that creates a kind of awe in man. Maybe in this context, the psalmist is speaking of a whale. And he said, these all wait for you. That you may give them their food in due season. What you give them they gather in. You open your hand and they are filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath and they die and they return to the dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created. You you renew the face of the earth. In other words, every single creature in the ocean and on the land, every single creature is dependent upon the power of God and the wisdom of God for their existence. And so is every human being, whether they realize it or whether they don't. May the glory of the Lord endure forever forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. He just praises the Lord for the beauty and the witness of creation. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him and I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. And so here's that prayer that the Lord would just remove anything that is out of harmony with creation as God intended it to be. And one day God will answer that. And then he closes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And so he ends the psalm in the same way that it began. Well, I'm going to finish a teaching there tonight. And I know that we've run out of time, but what does that mean to us around here? I'd like to just ask the worship team and just to bear, have you bear with me just a little bit. These Psalms are just too important for us not to to leave without allowing at least one meditative worship song in which to just allow us to give praise and to worship and thanks to God for all of his benefits, for his power, for his wisdom, all of the things that there's always going to be a generation of his people, that his promises are always true. And so if the worship team would come forward now, please lead us in a worship song and allow God to put that kind of a finishing touch on our hearts before we head out into the new week.